cliffcentral.com. Well, hello, hello, hello. And when you hear that signal, you know that this is Beyond Ears and Eyes on Cliff Central. So good to be back with you again. I'm Liesl Tom, and of course, the voice you heard who did not introduce herself today <laughs> is the lovely Shemaine Harris. With us in studio today, a very interesting person, a writer, radio personality, speaker, trainer, and then corporate salesman, Larry Pullman. Larry, I, I, I need to ask you about this corporate salesman part, because what we are discussing today, everything is so spiritual and uplifting but when i hear corporate my 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 senses go a bit wonky and then salesman honestly tell me more <laughs> well i'm uh, glad you asked liesel because did i pronounce that right by the way yes you liesel. did okay um I loved being in sales. I was in sales for 30 years, sales salesman, sales trainer, sales manager. Uh, the only part I didn't like was managing. Uh, <laughs> so what I found when I got into spiritual realms, to me there was no difference. There, you can't separate. If you're going to separate the two and say, this is my spiritual life and this is my other life, then you're not living a spiritual life, in my opinion. So um, to think that you can't be spiritual if you're a salesman or if you're a garbage truck driver or if you're a lawyer, uh, which most people put two rungs just above salesman, um, <laughs> then I think people miss the point. For uh, me, when I first got into learning spiritual principles, I looked back and I said, those are the same principles that I use as sales principles. How did the journey start for you? The yeah. realization that uh, the two worlds are intertwined. I think that when I got into um, spiritual studies, when I was about 30, I had already been involved in sales. Uh, I started to see the principles are the same. And I said, wow, this is no different than what I do. Now, the way I did my job was probably very different than what most salespeople did, which is why eventually I got into sales training. I wrote my own curriculum. I mean, that's an interesting story in itself. I was working for an international corporation, fairly large, in telecommunications, and decided that I was done. I had always said, if I ever get to the day where I don't absolutely love what I'm doing, I'm not going to do it anymore. And I loved sales. I never worked a day in my life. And then one day I woke up and realized that I still liked it a lot, but I didn't love it anymore. So I said, what do I love now? I said, I want to train. So I resigned. And the president of the company called me. He got my letter. And he said, um, why are you resigning? You've been great for us. We've been great for you. And I said, because I don't want to do this anymore, Craig. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do training. And he said, what kind of training? And I said, sales training. So he said, well, go home tonight. Write down everything you think you need to start a sales division. Call me in the morning. Hmm. So I did that. And I wondered whether or not an international corporation was going to be behind me teaching sales with the principles I wanted to teach which I think are spiritual principles. Because I want to ask you, is there space, is there room for spirit in corporations which are so focused on chasing the bucks? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it all is up to the individual. There is room for spirituality in anything you do in life if you bring it. And as I said, I wondered if I would get squelched a bit 
because I'm writing this curriculum. So in the seven years that I taught that curriculum for this company, I had three different bosses. None of them ever read my curriculum. None of them ever came to the course. None of them ever asked me any questions about it. So I never had any anybody, even though I started, it was a three-week course. It wasn't like a half-a-day seminar. This was a three-week course. Well, two weeks in sales and one week in product. The first day, I talked about who am I really? What is your true identity? Because there's two ways you can be successful in sales. One is the type of salespeople that everybody hates. It's you develop a shell around you that's impenetrable because then you don't care how many people say no. You just think they're stupid. Right, because that's this thing, and that's the salesperson that nobody likes. That's interesting. I always thought that salespeople would just think, "No, I just need to sell you anything." Yeah, and and, and you know, so all right, so that's a new way of of seeing that. Right. Um, the other way to be successful as a salesperson, and by the way, I would tell them, you can do that, and you can be successful. You can sell a ton, but you're going to burn out. Mm. And your personal life is not going to be good because you can't develop a shell and not let anybody in and then go home Take it and let people in. Yes. So how do you measure success then in your personal capacity? Then? For me, success is, is there an increase in life substance, which is hard to measure, but you can feel it. You know the difference uh, in where I go or isn't there. Okay. And if there is, then there is. And when I was in sales, my idea of sales is not I want to sell you something, but I want to find out what your needs are. And then if I happen to have something that's going to meet those needs, let's get together and it'll work out. Yeah. So when did you then decide you're giving up everything, you're packing what you need into your car and leaving the rest behind and offing into the world? Twice. <laughs> and why? Being successful, why? What was the motivation? Well, the first time I was uh, 28, and that's what my first book is about, Journaling the Journey, 25 Spiritual Insights to Light the Way. I was 28. I was working for General Electric Company. I had been working there for six years. I was successful. I had a great life, actually. Um, but something told me it was time to change, and I didn't understand that at the time. Consciously, what I understood was I don't like a change that my division just made, the people I'll be reporting to. I'm 28. I look around my office. The average age of everybody else in my office was about 50. And those guys were all complaining about the change but said, I have no choice. Mm. I've got 30 years in with the company. I can't leave. I can't, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, I'm 28. I've got six years. I can do anything I want to do. And I don't want to work for these people. So... I always kind of had a love affair with the United States, and I wanted to see more of it close up, not like a tourist. So I thought, I'm just going to take a year or two or three, and I'm going to travel and live in New Orleans for three months, in Atlanta for three months, in Texas for a few months, in Arizona, wherever I want to go, stay there long enough to get to know the culture, find any kind of job I could get to feed my face, because I had very little needs, and I end up in California. That was the first time. Okay, What was really happening was Spirit was telling me, you have to get out of your father's house. That's the first chapter in my book, Get Thee Out of Thy Father's House. Because just like Abraham in the Bible, when the Lord came to Abraham and said, Get thee out of thy father's house, he was saying, 
you're in a comfortable situation. As long as you're in a physically comfortable situation, you're never going to explore your spirituality. So to me, that was happening subconsciously, because consciously, I didn't want to explore spirituality. It didn't mean anything to me. So, but subconsciously, it was saying, you need to leave this and move out and find something else. And that's how I found spiritual teachers is along that path. But I want to ask you then, does this mean that everybody who answers this innate yearning we all have to find spirit, does that mean all of them have to quit their jobs and get out of their comfort zone? No. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> He's going into his book now. <laughs> no, you really don't. The reason that it happens for so many people is because most of us don't have what it takes to hear the still small voice of spirit that's within us if we're comfortable. But we can. It doesn't mean we can't. So to answer your mm -hmm. question. So you can be in a very comfortable situation. You can like you can hate your job for that matter. It doesn't matter if you like it, hate it, love it. Um, but you can be in any situation, stay in the situation and become aware that there's something more for me to pursue. There's something more for me to know about who I really am than what I'm doing, whether I like it or don't like it. But how do you get through the dogma? How do you get through the teachings of lifetimes that you need um, to go to school, find a job, have children, retire and die um, <laughs> without any pauses in between? How do you do that? Because it's easier hearing it than implementing it. True. So how do you do that? The first thing that you have to do is open ever so slightly to hearing something that you're not used to hearing without even consciously thinking about that because most of us don't consciously think about that. So how does that come to you? To me, that's, um, we could call it intuition. We could call it listening to the voice of God. A lot of people don't like the word God. You could call it listening to the universe, listening to life speaking to you. It's all just labels in the end. It's all it? just words, right? So you got to get past the words because the words just get in the way. But it's opening up to hearing something. Well, let me give you an example. Okay. And this is also in my book. When I was in college, I went through four years at Rutgers University studying electrical engineering. And I'm fond of saying I learned two things. I learned how to play bridge, <laughs> which was far more valuable to me than anything else I learned there. And I learned that I didn't want to be an engineer. So now here I am at the end of four years. I've got a degree in electrical engineering. There are people coming onto campus to do interviews to hire people like me so that I can actually find work. Right? This is what you were talking about. This Set is up this very is, well for this you. Is, yeah, this is what, what society tells us we're supposed to do. So I did the right thing. I went to school. I picked a good thing. Now I'm supposed to get a job. But I don't want to do this work. So what do I do? Well, without knowing it, I started listening to the voice of spirit. So how did I do that? I skipped the entire first set of interviews. Didn't go to any. And then I'm telling myself, you idiot. What you, did your parents say? Yeah, right. Well, I, I hadn't told them that yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and actually, my parents are very supporting anyway. So, yeah. Um, so then one day, I just thought, I just need to take a walk. You know, did you ever get that? I just need to clear my head. Just need to take a walk. I wasn't going any place special, and I was being led, but I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And so what it got me to was a telephone pole, and on that pole was a notice that said, tonight, 
two guys from General Electric will be talking about sales engineering. I had no idea what that meant. That term sounds like an oxymoron. It what is sales engineering? I, I know. That's crazy. So I said, well, I'm going to go listen to these guys. So I went and listened to them. And it was from that talk that I ended up taking a job that got me into a sales career, which I was I did not studied, didn't intend to get into sales, and it became what I loved. And I did it for over 30 years. Okay. Now, how did I get there? It was by not going down the route of, well, I'm pointing to the wrong person, of what society. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're just one person with two sides, you know. I love it. It's like heads and tails. <laughs> I'm not saying whose tails. And, um, <laughs> We're not getting into that not conversation. Into that. <laughs> but anyway, the, mm, the existing paradigm, especially when I went to school, this was 1960-something, it was you go to school, you get a job, you go to work, like you say, you find a wife, you get married, you have kids, all of that kind of thing. So here I was in that. I just got to a point where I knew this is not for me. Okay, and that, to answer your question from before, Liesl, is one of the ways that you can interrupt that pattern is by just getting to a point where you go, no, this is not for me. This may be what my dad wanted me to do. This may be what my family's always done. This may be what my friends think is a smart thing to do. But I know it's not for me. And then having the courage to open up just a little bit to say, I just need to take a walk. I come across this telephone pole, you know, without knowing how you're going to do it. No planning. Just listen to spirit and move on it without even knowing that it's spirit. Mm, but you do need quite a truckload of courage because what keeps most people, and, and I, I include myself in there, what keeps us in that perpetual loop is fear. Mm. How do you Absolutely. overcome that fear of just trusting and spreading your wings and flying? I don't know. There may be other people that could tell you how to overcome the fear. I don't know that you overcome the fear. I think you just do it anyway. Somebody uh, described courage one time as feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. You also you also mentioned um, that you were led by spirit, but you didn't realize it. But now, in retrospect, you know the signs of when spirit speaks to you. So exactly. How would you um, tell us what to look for in, in terms of that? I can't. Uh, but I can tell you what I look for, and it's different for different people. Uh, I find well, I'll give you some just some quick examples. I have a good friend who owned a company; he's retired now. And every time he had a major decision to make, a major life decision, business or personal, he would go running. Hmm. Now he was a runner. I wouldn't go running. I don't like running. Okay, but he'd go running, and he said he didn't care if he had to run a mile or twenty miles. He'd run until his head cleared, and he suddenly knew what to do. That's one way. I know a woman who said whenever she really was bogged down by fear, couldn't figure out what to do, she'd take a hot bath. It's something that's going to clear your mind and your heart. Let them come into a quiet space, and then spirit will talk Mm -hmm. to you in one way or another. I don't hear voices, but I know people that do. Mm -hmm. It's not about that. Uh, For me, okay, I'll give you an example for me. I went into the Peace Corps when I was 60 years old. I'm not a Peace Corps kind of guy. I don't camp. Okay, I don't learn languages easily. This is nothing that would ever really come to me from my left brain to say, hey, why don't you join the Peace Corps? I got a magazine that in the U.S. is called AARP Magazine. It's for people who are retired. In there, they had a short article that said, 7% of all Peace Corps volunteers are over the age of 50. 
never even would have thought about it because you think of Peace Corps volunteers as being 21, mm-hmm. 22 years old. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting. Never thought, oh, gee, what a good idea. I'll do that. So you asked about how do you know that, you know, when Spirit's talking mm-hmm. to you. For me, it's when something doesn't leave. So that read the article about the Peace Corps. Over the next several days, it kept coming back to me, and I kept wondering, what is that about? I'm not going to go into the Peace Corps. That's nuts. But it wouldn't leave me. And the other thing that I do is when I come into a quiet space, and like I said, for different people, how you get to a quiet space is up to you. could be meditating. could be journaling. could be a walk in the woods. How you get to a quiet space is up to you. For me, what happened was... I took a drive up to Colorado to see a friend of mine. We went to a park. She went shopping. I decided I'm going to walk around the park. I'm walking down the park, and I'm thinking about this Peace Corps thing and what else I want to do with my life. I don't know what I want to do with my life right now. What do you think? And as I'm walking down the path, out of the corner of my eye, I see a bush. Now, there's 5,000 bushes in this park, right? But I see this bush. And I take a few more steps, and I suddenly think, why did I notice that bush? So I went back, stood in front of it, and literally expected the Moses thing to happen. <laughs> I, I, I stood there and I go, do it, do it. You know, I'm looking at the bush, waiting for it to burst into flame, and then I'm going to know. So you know what happened? Nothing, right? <laughs> nothing happened. The bush didn't burn. Nothing happened. So I continued my walk, got back to the car. When I sat down in the car, I knew what I had to do. I don't know how I knew. I just knew. So it wasn't like I heard the voice of God talking to me or... I just got in and I said, yeah, I'm going into the Peace Corps. Well, actually, I didn't say that. I said, I'm going to apply to the Peace Corps because my left brain told me that's nuts mm-hmm. for me to go into the Peace Corps at 60 years old. Crazy. So what my left brain told me was, oh, wait, wait. I know how this spirit thing works. It's not that you're going into the Peace Corps. You're just putting in the application. It takes a year to do an application for the Peace Corps. Wow. So I said, this is just spirit leading you to a path. And you're going to get on this path so that you meet some certain person or read some book or do something that's going to come up because you're on this path. And then you'll know that's the left turn to take to go do that. But that never happened, and I went in. (laughs) That's incredible. You live a spirit-filled life, and you obviously have a down. I'm not saying that that you have a down in an arrogant way or anything, but you've learned a few lessons along the way. So... You also teach uh, people the art of what? Creative The art of creative living. living. Mm. What does that mean? How do I live creatively? Do yeah. I draw every day? Well, you know, it's, I'm glad you put it that way, Liesl, because uh, that's what people think when you say creative. They think, oh, drawing, painting, singing, mm-hmm. acting, something in the creative arts. Life is creative. You know, you wouldn't have been here if it wasn't for creation, mm-hmm. right? So how do you live a creative life? You live a creative life basically by what we've been talking about, listening to spirit. I believe that there is a what I would call a divine design for everybody. You could just call it life's blueprint. Um, now, it's different than what people might call destiny. When people talk about destiny, um, usually people I've heard talk about destiny, they talk about it like you don't have an option. Mm-hmm. Right. This is what's going to happen in your life. You were destined to do this, so you're going to do it. To me, the, the blueprint of life is this is what will work best for you. This is what will be creative for you. But you don't have to do it. You have a choice. We all have a choice. And we can resist that or we can yield to it. 
resisting it looks like what we've seen in a lot of people, which leads to fear. So when you say this is, what is this? When you Can you be a bit more specific? Do you have uh, something in mind where you go like, okay, um, I'm telling you this would be better for you, but obviously you can go to the left, the right, the rear, front. So do you have any example of where you went with that? Sure. When I say this, meaning this design, mm-hmm. what's right for you in a design, I think that people will know what's right for them, what this is for that person, when they feel it in their gut, when they say, this feels right. Um, a lot of times I ask people, is there anything in your life that you do that you don't notice what time it is? That when you're doing it, the time just disappears. I could be playing games. It doesn't have to be some dramatic big thing. It could be playing games. It could be singing. It can be reading. It can be working with horses. It can be farming. Um, it can be whatever it is that you lose track of time, that is the this for you. For you. And then you have to have the courage because here's what most people say. They say, oh, yeah, I love doing this, but I can't make a living at that. How am I going to feed my family? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? How am I and then the fear sets in. Mm-hmm. Okay. And to that person, you know what I usually suggest because I do workshops on how to find and follow your bliss. And I say, okay, I get it. You know, and I'm not telling you, quit your job, leave your family, and, you know, go play solitaire for the rest of your life. But if you have something that really lights you up, then begin to implement that more in your life, whether it's just as an avocation, so you don't quit your job. And then open yourself to see ways that that might fit in to your job. You're listening to Beyond Ears and Eyes on Cliff Central. In studio with us is Larry Pullman, writer, radio personality, speaker, but but most of all, teacher. I I, I jokingly said to you earlier, you know, you're almost a guru. Um, Larry, you describe yourself as a citizen of the world, but your passport is... uh, has has the has the eagle on it you're a united states citizen what are you doing in south africa well i'm in south africa now that depends um see that's a great question because it leads to a great answer which is there's the superficial reason the apparent reason that i'm in south africa and then there is the real reason i'm in south africa so on the surface of things <laughs> this is where one asks to elaborate <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly um, on the surface of things, I'm here because my friend Louise Broomberg lives in South Africa. Uh, we've been great friends for many years. Um, we, she was with me on the faculty of courses that I've taught, Art of Creative Living, The Opening, things like that. She's a spiritual teacher, uh, and she's a wonderful person. And she sent me an email. I, uh, the last time I was here was three years ago. She sent me an email, and she said, I am currently working and living at Emoyeni, which is a Buddhist retreat center out in the bush, about an hour and a half out of Johannesburg. And we could really use some help here. Um, what would you think about coming for, spend three months? And I said, great. Now, that's on the surface. The real reason I said great was because it felt right to me. That was the only reason I'm in South Africa, is it felt right to me to be here. I give up. Uh, not that long ago. I gave up about three years ago in asking the question, why? Hmm. Why is a useless question? Because it only engages the left brain. 
It doesn't really talk to your intuition. Your intuition is what's tied into 99.9% of all the wisdom in the universe. But we want to ask the left brain, which is tied into 0.1%, why? I had a friend who would uh, come back on that one and she'd say, why not? Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, I interrupted you. (laughs) Go ahead. No, that's fine. And I I love the name of your show. I didn't know what it was when, Mm -hmm. when you invited me to do this interview. But Beyond Eyes and Ears, that's exactly what I'm talking about. The eyes and ears say I'm going to South Africa because my friend's there. She invited me to come. I'd love to spend some time with her. Beyond Eyes and Ears is that feels right to me that I should be in South Africa at this time, at that place, with that person. And then I may never know why I really came here. And I don't care. So what do you do at the Buddhist retreat? Because you also have retreats, Costa Rica retreats, that you you do um, for your people. Do I say your people or your students? (laughs) (laughs) My people. I have people. I have people. And you're a guru. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So um, do you guys compare notes? Um, Are there areas where it's parallel where you um, kind of say, okay, we do that and maybe we could implement what you're doing at Emoyeni at Costa Rica or what, what happens? That sounds wonderful, but no. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe spirit is telling you that's what you should that do. That should do, exactly. Maybe that's why I'm on this radio show. Um, actually, what I'm doing at Emoyeni has nothing to do with their retreats. Well, I shouldn't say that. Nothing on the surface. Uh, I'm doing projects that people don't have time to do. Mm-hmm. And it could be pulling out lantana, which is growing wild all over the place. Um, clearing out storage rooms that people can't even walk in anymore, much less know what's in there. Um, bring organization to to areas that aren't organized. It's, it's what I love to do is bring order out of chaos. Um, so I'm doing those sorts of things. You're there. A I'm not, yeah, yeah. Well, in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not there to, to facilitate retreats. Okay. Uh, I, I had the the pleasure <laughs> and the um, and and the uh, the honor to participate in some of the retreats they were doing, uh, meditation retreats, yoga retreats, cooking retreats, which I'm not a cook. Anybody that's ever eaten my food can tell you that. Um, but just wonderful retreats that I got to participate in, but I wasn't doing them. You were talking about being on the radio show. You're also a radio host. Do you miss it? No. Um, I stopped doing the radio show four years ago, mm-hmm. and... I have found in my life that I'm blessed or cursed, either way you want to look at it. I look at it as blessed. I don't miss things. Um, I've lived at the ocean. I've lived in the mountains. I've lived in the forest. I've lived in the desert. And people always say, don't you? My brother always asked me. We grew up on the east coast of the U.S. Don't you miss the ocean? No. I love the ocean when I'm there. And when, you, when it comes to people? And, uh, you know, it gets me in trouble when I say <laughs> I, I, I don't miss people when I'm not with them. When I'm with them, I love them and I enjoy them. And then when I'm with somebody else, I'm with you two right now. Mm. So I love you two and I want to be here. You <laughs> have the absolute ability to live in the moment. That's what I was yeah. going to say. The that moment. is living in the absolute moment. But yeah. it could just be a man thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> is, this, is this living in the moment something that you were taught that you found or were you issued with it because we would like to know how to get get there there. yeah i i think i mean i could say i was born with it but then you have the whole question of nurture or nature and i don't really know the answer to that i've always been that way but when i think back now that you asked me the question 
to how I was raised and what my parents were like, um, they never talked about, well, wasn't it better when we, you know, they never talked a lot about the past. It was always about what do you want to do now? Mm. And so I, that's probably where it, where it comes from. Could it be because the past was just too painful to think of? I'd love to say that. You know, if I was going to go on the radio, I'd love to tell everybody my horrible, painful past story because they, they, those work so well on the radio. But I really had a very great um, growing up. Now, I will no, I mean, say that my father... The parents not yeah, saying anything because that could they be. tried to hide that yeah. stuff from kids. I, I, I did find out much later that my dad pretty, had a pretty um, dysfunctional family. Uh, I didn't really know that, and he didn't talk about it much, and that may be why. You may be right. Mm. Uh, my mother, not so much. Um, but, yeah, they just... And they had wonderful times together, you know, before I was ever born. Mm. And you used to have to pry it out of them to say, hey, tell us about this, tell us about that. And then they would, even though it was good memories. But they were more about, you know... Now. Living in the Yeah, now. what's happening now? Now, Larry, your first journey and, of course, your first book journaling the journey you describe it as 36 year old future larry coming back in a yoda like way <laughs> giving present larry some life lessons and those those 25 spiritual lessons are they are something that we all can share won't you tell us about them sure you you said it very well when i when i was 28 and I set out on this journey, quit my job with General Electric, and decided I was going to spend one to three years to go across the U.S., end up in, Pal in, um, in Santa Clara is where I wanted to end up. And everybody that I mentioned that to said, wow, that is so exciting. That is so cool. I wish I could do that. And so I started thinking, wow, if everybody thinks that's cool, it would make a good book. So I thought, I'll keep a journal. And when I get to the end, I'll write this book that's just like a travelogue, where I went, where I ate, you know, experiences. So I kept the journal. Didn't write the book. So, as you say, many years later, I was actually in the Peace Corps in Ghana in a what they call a bathroom, which is a room you bath in, mm -hmm. uh, which was really nothing but a, a, a room because there was no running water. So you had a pail with a sponge, and you took a sponge bath in this room. And as I was doing that, it just, boom, it just hit me that, oh, that book I was going to write all those years ago had the right title. I was originally going to call it The Journey. Wrong topic. It's not about the journey from New Jersey to Arizona. I never got to California. It's about life's journey. And so now here I am at 62 years old, reading this journal that I wrote when I was 28 and realizing how much I didn't know back then and coming up with these 25 spiritual insights, hopefully in a, in a way that's entertaining in the book, as well as enlightening. So that's how it came about. So what are these insights? Well, um, they could be things as simple as let love radiate without concern for results. In other words, unconditional love. And one of the things I write about in the book that Unconditional, in that sense, is not an adjective describing a type of love. It's an inherent characteristic of love. If it's not unconditional, it isn't love. How do you it's learn, something though? else. How do you learn to love unconditionally? What's the process that you need to go through for that? Well, the first thing that comes to mind for me is seeing it. Mm. Seeing it in someone 
or reading about it, even if it's fiction, but just getting a glimpse that it's possible because most people don't think it's possible. I'll love you if you do this, right? Even your children, I'll love you if you behave right. Or parents will say, well, I love my children anyway, no matter what they do. And there's some truth to that. And that is unconditional love. The, the love for a parent to a child, even though that child has now gone off the deep end and they've committed crimes, they're in jail, they're addicted to heroin, whatever it is, the parent still has a love. That's an unconditional love. You know, I wonder about that because mm-hmm. um, I have found that children seemingly, to my mind and my experience, tend to love the parents more. Um, almost it, for me that there's like a, you know, if, if, if you see good parents, it's like children are just like, I'm yours. You can do with me what you want. You see bad parents. Children go, I'll forgive you. Just, you know, just accept me for who I am. So I sometimes battle with that one mm-hmm. where you go like parents loving out more or unconditionally or children uh, loving unconditionally. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tricky road. That's a whole radio show in itself uh, <laughs> is to talk about that. I'm not a parenting expert. Um, so much, though, of what looks like unconditional love is conditional. Mm-hmm. And we see it all the time both ways. Uh, spoiled kids are kids that say, well, I'll love you, Mommy, if you buy me this. Right? Or I'll love you if you give me the money to go to the right school when they get older. Or, you know, whatever it is. And vice versa. I'll love you know I love your brother because he's really good at sports, yeah. but you're not, so you don't get as much love. Now, a parent would, well, I, I won't say never. A parent would almost never say that, but children see that. They see you love her more than you love me. What do you say to a woman who's abused in a relationship? She can't get out because you're supposed to love unconditionally. What kind of love would that be? How well, you- there is a one of the spiritual insights you asked about. The spiritual insights is if you. See someone that you love in quicksand, and you're standing on solid ground, and you offer them a branch, and they say, no, you come in here and push me out. Then you only have two choices. Watch them go under, or jump in and go under with them. You can't save anybody that way. And to your question, if somebody's in an abusive situation, and they say they love their partner, they're trying to get their partner out by pushing them out and staying in the quicksand. You can't. Mm -hmm. So what I would say to that person is, get out of that relationship. And then if you still love that person, do what it takes to help them. But don't stay there. You're just going to go under with them. That reminds me of a life lesson that I had to learn and which I try to, to teach other people is to put yourself first. This is your life's drama and you have to be the central figure in your life because especially us women we tend to put everybody else's needs before our own and then we wonder why we feel so unfulfilled right yeah and it's funny uh, there's a couple of directions i'd like to go off on that if we have the time yes we do we have a bit of time left okay. yes <laughs> um one is one of the spiritual insights in the book is Ah. Is that now in journaling the journey? In journaling there the journey. Are two. Yeah, there's two books. Okay. Right, journey to bliss. We haven't really talked about. We're gonna uh, hopefully. But journaling the journey. One of the spiritual insights in that book is, I'm not here to make you happy, hmm. and you're not here to make anybody else happy. Okay, your job is to make you happy. Now, that sounds very selfish. So, 
another part of the book that I, where I talk about the most selfish people in history are Gandhi, Jesus, Mother Teresa, Moses, anybody else that you want to pick like that. Why do I say that? I say that I'm because... I'm surprised Mandela didn't come in there. Mandela? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't in the book at the time, but he has come... When I do workshops, mm -hmm. I, I mention Mandela. Okay. One of the most selfish men who's ever lived. Why? Because he only does what brings him the greatest fulfillment. But the greatest fulfillment is living that divine blueprint. What did you come on earth to do? And if you do that, then it's what I call selfish with a capital S, a divine selfishness. This is what I'm here to do, and I'm doing it to the best I can. That is going to fulfill me to the greatest degree, and it will bring the greatest good to the whole. And it's serving other people. I wanted to, to, to say when, when, when you were telling us what you do or did at Emoyeni that you're being a servant. And isn't that something that is so precious? Most people look down on the concept of servant. But that is actually why we are here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, it, it's so interesting to me how the problems we get into in the world are from judgment. And even in uh, the sexes, male and female, was there a problem with having um, the man goes out, does the work, brings in the income, the woman stays home, takes care of the children, does the house? Um, for some people, yeah, that probably was a problem. For some, it wasn't. It became a real problem, though, when we said this is more valuable than that, mm -hmm. that the guy going out and doing all the stuff, that's more valuable than the woman who stays home and takes care of the kids and keeps the house. No, it isn't. It's just another job. Is the doctor more valuable than the garbage collector? Is the teacher more valuable than, you know, the, the ditch digger? It's a bit like that uh, story of... Uh The, the body parts arguing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to bring that up, but I didn't know. <laughs> you can bring it up. And this is, of course, Cliff Central. It's unradio, so you can tell the whole story uncensored. But I don't know if we have time. Shemaine, you wanted to get to... We do have to, quite uh, a bit of time left. Hey, We have about five minutes left, so go ahead. <laughs> go no, ahead Larry, with the body I'll parts. Leave, I'll leave the body parts story to you. <laughs> uh, and, that is, uh, <laughs> and that happens too. <laughs> yeah, Sometimes someone's looking for Larry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't know that I remember the whole story, but there was uh, the, the body parts were arguing about who's the most valuable part to the body. And the brain said, well, pff, obviously, I am the most valuable because without me, you can't think, you can't think, you can't do anything. And the legs said, no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. We're the most valuable because how are you going to get anywhere? without legs. You've got to have the legs. The eyes, of course, said, no, 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 no. We're the most valuable part of the body because if you can't see, then you don't know where you're going. You don't know how to do anything. You can, And so it went. All the different parts of the body were speaking up. Finally, the asshole got really aggravated. And he said, <laughs> okay, you guys want to know who the most valuable part of the body is? Fine. And he closed up. Wouldn't let anything out. And after about a week, The eyes were blurry. The brain couldn't think straight. The legs were wobbly. <laughs> There was no part of the body that was functioning right. And they all agreed, you know what? The asshole is the most valuable part of the body. You're giving assholes a good name. <laughs> <laughs> But that just, you know, is a reminder that there's no one more important mm -hmm. than anyone else. In this ego-driven society, we do tend to give more value to the male role or to the, the, the professionals and we undervalue the servants who 
who are actually the ones making the world go round. Yeah. Shemaine, you wanted to talk about the journey to bliss. bliss. Which is Sorry, different. I couldn't but see I, the title. But I wanted to know how you, from journaling the journey still, how you compared that young one that you said you knew so little about life to the older person who learned so much about life. Because I think there was a review that said that if... That book is written with so much wisdom, but it also comes uh, with an easy read. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like no ego. I'm paraphrasing terribly here. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. So um, so I wondered how you saw that young man, because I think it's an incredible man, that. And then now this older one, I'm not so sure whether they're incredible too. But, <laughs> but I wanted to know what the older one thought of that young man now in his shoes. It's interesting because um, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. Sometimes you wonder if ignorance isn't bliss Mm. because um, that young man, the young Larry Perlman, I think was actually pretty spiritual in nature, just didn't know it. But Mm. it was following spirit in a way without thinking about it. Oftentimes when we – so now here I am at – well, now I'm 69 and I've had a lot of spiritual education, and I have to be careful it doesn't get in the way, that you think, oh, but I learned this, and so it's important to do this. No, it's not. It may have been then. I remember I took a a spiritual class one time. It was actually a two-month class. And when we got to the end of it, the man who headed it up, who is one of my spiritual mentors, a wonderful man by the name of Michael Cecil, asked, how many people in here have taken notes? And, of course, everybody raised their hand. And he says, okay, my first advice to you is burn your notes. Because even if what you wrote was true at that time, it may not be true now. Mm -hmm. And it certainly may not be true by the time you read your notes and say, oh, now I have to apply that to this situation. No, this situation is now. This situation is not that situation. And so what was true then might not be true now. Stay open to the truth. And the second bit of advice that he gave us, which I've always remembered, is only speak from what you know. He says, don't say anything to anybody that this is true because you heard me say it or you heard anybody. I don't care if you read it in the Bible. It's what Jesus says. Well, what did Jesus say when he was with the Pharisees and all these people? He said, this is what the book says, but I say unto you. Mm. And the advice is the same. Don't say Jesus said. I say unto you. And only say that if you know it to be true. If you don't know it to be true, shut up. So if you know it to be true, then you are able to handle the persecution that comes with it. Exactly. So your other book, the second book, this one is just Our Journey to Bliss. Yes. Um, What is that about? It says on the cover, stories to inspire you to find and follow your passion. Exactly. And, okay, so that goes back to something that you had asked me earlier about um, what do you tell people who are just following out the normal thing. Well, this is this is this book is what I tell people that are just following life's path without really enjoying what they're doing. They don't love what they're doing. I would like people to never have a blue Monday, mm-hmm. never have to say thank God it's Friday, never have to say I live the 50 weeks of the year so I can get to my 2 weeks of vacation. Love what you're doing, whether it's your vocation, your avocation. So in this book, what I decided to do was write an introduction that says, what does it mean to follow your bliss? We use that phrase, but what does it really mean? And we get into some of the things we talked about before, doing the things that really light you up, that where time just disappears. Why should I do it? 
and we get into talking about um, the most selfish people in the world. Why did they do what they did? Because it brought them the greatest fulfillment. And if you bring yourself the greatest fulfillment, you bring a gift into the world. That's why you do it. And then it's, well, I don't think I can do it. So the rest of this book is 13 stories about what I call regular people. Because I don't think people are really inspired by reading stories of of very famous people. They think, oh, yeah, well, that's so-and-so, you know, yeah. so they could do that. These are just regular people you never heard of. And they go on to find a way. And there's 13 very different paths to how they got there. So it lets people read these things, get some ideas, and then hopefully get inspired to say, you know, if they can do it, I can do it. And unfortunately, on that good note, our time is up. Oh. <laughs> people can get to Larry Perlman's site on Larry Perlman. Dot com. com. Yeah, and then get all the information. There's stacks of it out there. Thank you so much for being oh, here. Thank you for having me. This was such a joy. Thank you for sharing your wisdom from me, Liesl Tom. Have a lovely day. Goodbye. And from me, Shemaine Harris, thank you for joining Beyond Ears and Eyes on Cliff Central. Bye bye now. Cliffcentral.com.